0: Open up your Bibles to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, the last book of the Old Testament in our series uh, that uh, we've been going through each book of the Bible on a Sunday. And we are going to build on what Emily said to talk about uh, the sovereignty of God as displayed in the book of Esther, but not just that. You heard in Emily's testimony about how uh, what she saw as opportunity in the future, that God was actually arranging something so that in hindsight, his sovereignty, his provision, his, his, his omnipotence was on display in bringing her to that point and filling her mind with joy and, uh, and peace and purpose about her, her life going forward. So there's more opportunity, more guidance, and God's stirring. And that's really the way that we do life. That's really the way that we, that we operate from day to day is uh, when we are, I mean, the, the way that I've described it is that sometimes you just feel like you're caught up in the whirlwind of God's purpose and grace. Is that you don't really, the things that are, that are coming or happening or the opportunities you see before you, um, all of a sudden one day you look back and you're like, oh God, so that's what you were doing. I didn't know it at the time, but as I saw those, saw those opportunities and I was faithful with those opportunities, you had something greater than I could have ever imagined in mind. And that's exactly what we're going to see from the book of Esther today. This, this being the last book of the Old Testament, uh, when I get back from Vietnam, we'll start in, uh, actually, uh, the book of Mark, which is the first gospel written. And then we'll journey our way through the New Testament as well. Esther is a a book that some people have struggled with for the simple fact that it doesn't mention God anywhere. But just like in Emily's testimony and just like your own life, uh, there may be seasons of your life where you feel like God is absent, but then looking back in hindsight, you see his fingerprints all over the situation. And so that is the story of Esther that we're going to dive into today. And so last week we studied Ezra and Nehemiah. And we talked about the this succession of Persian kings that enabled the Hebrew leaders, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and its walls. And in Ezra chapter 1, the first Persian king, Cyrus the Great, uh, you can kind of see him represented up there, declares that Zerubbabel should return. And we shouldn't have the misconception that when uh, Cyrus just said all the Jews could return, that all of them were like, well, hey, that's great. Let's go back home. A lot of them uh, chose to stay. Some of them went back. Some of them chose to stay. And so they stayed for a variety of reasons. But Cyrus's son-in-law, uh, who was named Darius, I've always called him Darius, but it's actually Darius, and then his grandson, whose name was Xerxes, uh, he, uh, they eventually came into power and this is the same Xerxes that, uh, that sought to invade Greece and fought the battle with the 300 Spartans that was uh, uh, depicted in the, in the film 300, right? Uh, the, the, the battle of the hot gates, it was literally called the battle of Thermopylae. And the, the, as, as Xerxes tried to conquer um, Greece, he experienced one of the first defeats in his lifetime. And he was pushed back uh, and came back. And then eventually his son Artaxerxes uh, came into power and that that's who Ezra and Nehemiah received their authority to go back and rebuild the, uh, the community and the walls there in Jerusalem. And so we did Ezra and Nehemiah last week, and just to kind of let you see where everybody is here, when we come to the book of, of Esther, it says in the very first verse, Now in the days of Ahasuerus. I, I've, had so, I've heard like 15 different pronunciations of that name uh, this week, but you need to know that that's the Hebrew name for Xerxes. So when you read the book of Esther, you need to realize that this is one of the most powerful rulers. Uh, Alexander the Great was definitely the most powerful that came, that came along after Xerxes, but that Esther is put into not just the, uh, the harem, but she is put into the personal life of Xerxes, one of the most powerful rulers in all of history. And so you have a little bit of an understanding about uh, who this person is. But now let's just begin to go through these chapters. And what you're going to see is as we go through these chapters, the notes that are going to be on the screen, you can kind of keep, keep your eyes on your Bible, but the notes that are going to be on the screen are all of these Ironic contours of the story these coincidences right that just randomly come about and then we see in the end that they're not coincidences at all that God has been moving and working and and like Emily said working all things together for for his glory and for the good of his people. And so Esther chapter 1 we see it starts out with Xerxes, that's what I call him because like I said I hate that other name, Ahasuerus. Uh as uh, as as you get into chapter 1 Xerxes is holding this six-month meeting. And commentators think that it is a war summit where he is planning the invasion of Greece. So he's 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 preparing to go and he ends that six-month summit with a party, a 7-day party where if you actually look in uh uh, in, uh, uh, in verse eight, it says, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, right? And so it's basically a frat party slash rave, just something for all the guys to drink and get drunk. And if you hear anything from me today that you need to know that in places like that, bad things happen. And so basically, you know, the story, he calls queen Vashti, Vashti, his wife to come and he says, come with your crown on. And the implication is come with only your crown on. And, uh, she didn't like that too much. Uh, some people think that she was, uh, pregnant. Uh, some people just think that she just didn't, uh, want to go and indulge her husband who was in this drunken fit. And so one way or another, all of, uh, the, uh, the kings, all of the, all of the king's counselors and officials, basically what they said was, Hey, you can't, you can't allow that because if you do these women are going to think that they can just think for themselves, right? And that, that's literally what they say in, in Esther chapter 1. These these women are going to rise up. And they're going to start telling us what to do and and you can't allow that. So you've got to you've got to stop that Xerxes. And so that's exactly what he does. He puts Queen Vashti Vashti away and uh uh and, uh, and actually divorces her and deposes her as queen. And then between chapter one and chapter two, there is about four to five years that pass by you don't get that from the text, but we know from history that Xerxes, after planning that uh, invasion of Greece, then went and invaded Greece. So he was kind of mad about the whole Vashti situation and, and decides to go invade a country, but it doesn't really work out that way. And so when he comes back, he's sulking, he's feeling bad. And so what do his officials and counselors tell him to do? Hey, throw a nationwide beauty pageant and find you a new wife. That's, it. That's what he does. That's what chapter two is all about. So you are introduced in chapter 2 to this woman named Esther. And for the next, uh, in this, for basically the rest of the book, Esther is the main character with her cousin, Mordecai. Look at verse 5 in chapter 2. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, that's the capital city of uh, Persia, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. That's important for later on. They had been carried away, and basically uh, they'd been, their, their, they, their parents had been carried away, and then they had been born there in exile, and, um, and Esther's parents had died. Now, her, her Hebrew name was Hadassah, but her Persian name was Esther. And uh, Mordecai was about 15 years older than Esther, and so he kind of took her in, it says at the end of verse 7, as, as his own daughter. And so they anticipate that there were about 25 million women in Persia at this time. And the rest of chapter 2 kind of chronicles how it all whittled down, these 25 million whittled down to about 400. And those 400 entered this year-long contest where they went into the harem of the king, and each one would be brought before the king. And as they would be brought before the king, the king would just decide whether or not he liked them. And when when he got to Esther, he said, there's the one. Coincidence, maybe, I think not. And King Xerxes, one of the most powerful men in all of history, becomes smitten with this Hebrew woman. But she doesn't tell him that she is a Hebrew. And around this time, at the end of chapter 2, we hear about Mordecai who hears two of, the, of Xerxes' eunuchs, who would have been people who were very close to him, they, Mordecai overhears them plotting to kill the king. And so Mordecai goes to Esther with the plot. Esther goes to Xerxes with the plot, and they squash it. And take care of those would-be assassins, and uh, they write it down in basically these daily journals that they kept. The Persians recorded everything, and that's how we know so much about them. We can date them very accurately because they kept all of these records. And so basically, when, when Mordecai helps uh, save the king, it's written down. But it, the text is very—it uh, it does not say that, that Mordecai re- was rewarded, and it does that on purpose— And then you're introduced to the last character in this whole story in chapter 3. His name was Haman. His name was Haman. The king appoints Haman essentially as his prime minister. Now, I told you to remember that that Mordecai was a Benjaminite, right? Well, it says very clearly in chapter 3, in verse 1, that Haman was an Agagite, or an Agagite, right? Basically, descendants of King Agag. Now, the first king of Israel, his name was Saul, right? Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And when God told Saul to destroy the Amalekites, whose king was Agag, Saul went, and that's where he didn't fulfill the command of God fully. And Samuel came, came along, and having uh, zeal for the Lord, uh, let's just say that, that Samuel uh, completed the task that Saul had failed to accomplish, and he killed King Agag. And so you've got Haman, who knows his history. He's an Agagite. And then you've got Mordecai, whose descendant was Saul. Basically, your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather killed my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. And they know their history. And so Haman hates Mordecai. And Mordecai hates Haman. And chapter 3 tells us about the situation that when Haman was exalted as prime minister over all of Persia, that he would actually force the people to bow down to him. And Mordecai, when Haman passed by him, Mordecai said, I'm not bowing down to you. And As he disobeyed, Mordecai essentially goes and he goes back to the king at the end of chapter 3 and he lies to him. And he says to him, hey, there's a certain group of people who don't obey your laws. And I think it would be best for us just to kill them all. That was the kind of power that Haman had. And Haman makes this suggestion to the king, and, and you get this kind of picture of Xerxes that kind of when he's at home lounging around, that he's just kind of a, a fool. Like he just kind of goes along with, with everything that Haman says. And so Haman suggests this, and the king agrees. Now remember, Esther still has not told her husband, Xerxes, that she's a Jew. And now you have uh, Xerxes' prime minister, his right-hand man, saying that we need to kill all the Jews. It's, it's really the story it's setting itself up for an interesting uh, kind, of, kind of climax here in a little while. And chapter 4 is probably one of the most famous chapters uh, in the book of Esther. And so Mordecai goes to Esther when he finds out this plot. Mordecai goes to Esther and says, they're going to kill all of us. You've got to... You've got to do something, Esther. And Esther is very apprehensive because Esther knows that the king, even though he's kind of a fool, right, that it's still Persian law that if you enter into the presence of the king uninvited, that he can just kill you right there on the spot. That is, unless he extends his scepter to you, which was kind of a, you know, hey, come, come talk to me, what's on your mind uh, kind of gesture. And so Esther goes, and she's presented with a choice. And Mordecai just very clearly says, look at uh, look in verse 14. Mordecai gives one of these, uh, f- these, these verses that, uh, or this, this passage where these verses just kind of jump off the page at us. Mordecai, even though God's not mentioned, Mordecai believes in the promises of God. He believes in the sovereignty of God. Look at what he says in verse 14 of chapter 4. Esther's apprehensive About doing this, and he says in verse 14 If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise up from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this? And Esther thinks about what he says. Asks him to fast and pray, asks the people to fast and pray, and then she ends. Look at the end of verse 16. I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and listen to this courage, this resolve, this surrender. If I perish, I perish. And so chapter 5 goes on, and Esther prepares a, uh, she, go, she goes to the king and invites him and Haman to a banquet. The thing, this is so funny, right? It's a testimony of God's sovereignty and how uh, it, it interacts with us. The thing that, that Esther was so worried about, me entering the presence of the king, didn't even turn out to be an issue, right? And so she goes into the king, and the king's like, oh, hey girl, you know, how you doing? And what's on your mind? And she says, well, I want to throw a banquet for you and Haman. He says, okay, sounds good, because he likes to party, right? And so he she prepares this banquet, and, uh, and, and this banquet happens in chapter 5, and Esther gets in front of the king at the banquet, going to say, hey, pe- somebody's trying to kill me and all my people, and she freezes. Have you ever had that happen? And the king says, well, what do you want us here for? And Esther says, well, I brought you here to invite you back to another banquet tomorrow night. And internally, like the text doesn't give give us this, but internally she's like, why did you say that? Just tell him what you got. You know, I mean, she's just having this internal conflict because she invited him there to say, hey, people, you know, Haman's trying to kill all of us, but she freezes. But even her freezing was a part of God's plan. Because that night, <laughs> that night, Haman once again passes Mordecai. And guess what happens? Mordecai still stubbornly refuses to bow down. Haman is, he's, think about where Haman is. Haman's coming off of one of the greatest nights of his life. I was invited to a banquet, just me, the king, and the queen. Uh, like his pride, his head could barely fit through the door frame. I mean, he is, he is, he's feeling like he is on top of the world. And now he comes across this Mordecai who won't bow down to him. Oh, we can't have that. And so Haman gets home that night enraged. He says, have a, gallow, uh, a gallows be built Seventy-five feet tall. Now, we, we see hang him on the gallows, we think like a hangman's noose with a rope. So this is actually more like a, a big pillar with a spike on the end, and they would just kind of impale you on it, right? And 75 feet tall, that was his plan for Mordecai. He wanted everybody to see how, how, how powerful he was and how, ha- how much he hated Mordecai. And so Esther's beating herself up for freezing and not asking the king for what she really wanted. Haman's going home, and he is, he's enraged, and he's plotting Mordecai's death. And they're back at the palace. The king, goes to the pal- the king uh, tries to get in bed and go to sleep. But in chapter 6, we find out in verse 1, on that night, the king could not sleep. Coincidence? I think not. The king couldn't sleep. And so, like I said, they recorded everything. So the king asks one of his guards, hey, would you read me a bedtime story? just go pick a book off the shelf, right? This is their version of counting sheep, right? And so the guard goes, and as far as we know, randomly, quote unquote, picks a book off the shelf and goes and randomly sits down beside the king and opens to the page and begins to read to him about this episode, verse 2 they found it was written how Mordecai had told about these two eunuchs who were going to lay hands on uh, the king. We saw last week from uh, Ezra or Nehemiah that that laying hands on does not have the kind of connotation it did when we were asking people to pray for us down here. It was was the bad kind of laying on of hands. And so basically, the king, look at verse 3, he says, What honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? And the king's young man who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Mordecai had been forgotten. I'm behind here a little bit. Mordecai had been forgotten, but that was no coincidence either. And so the next morning, Haman comes into the office and he's got this plot to kill Mordecai. And before he can mention it, the king asks, look at verse six. This is great. This, This is read every year in Jewish synagogues at the Feast of Purim. And every year... When it gets to this point, you've got to know just everybody's doing this. Because this is where it gets really, really good. Look at verse 6. So Haman came in and the king, before Haman could ever tell him about this desire to kill Mordecai, the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman says, this is it. This is, oh, I've been waiting for this. Every night I go to sleep and I've been thinking about... What can the king do to make me feel even more awesome? And he says, Hey, you need to get your personal horse and you need to put that guy on it. And you need to give him this awesome robe, bling everywhere. And you need to have one of your officials going before him and shouting, This is the man who the king delights in. And Haman's. Just thinking, this is it. This is it. I've won the lottery. This is it. And the king tells him, he says, uh, he says in verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes over there in my closet and the horse over there in the stable, as you said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's date. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. And so Haman took the robes and guess who the king ordained would go before Mordecai to tell everybody how awesome he was? Haman. Haman's the one who's got to do that now. And so Mordecai returned to the king's gate and all of what Haman had planned for himself, he actually has to do to Haman. And so this story has a turn. And actually, Haman uh, gets home before the second banquet that night. And it says, Haman hurried to his house, house morning, this is verse 12, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends, because they were all waiting, because they know he's had a bad day, everything that had happened to him. And then the wise man and his wife Zeresh basically said, that ain't good. That's the southern translation of it. Like that. That's that's not good, Haman. I'm just telling you. It sounds like Mordecai's on his way up and you on the way down. And so he says, "Well, I still have to go to this banquet with the king and queen tonight, so I'll go do that, and that's going to bring my spirits up." So in uh, chapter seven, he goes to the banquet, and at this banquet, at this banquet, uh, Esther works up the courage to ask about uh, what was on her mind. And look at verse, uh, verse 2. The second day as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, there's a lot of talk about alcohol in here. It's really, I, I think it's, the Lord's trying to tell us something about it. Um <laughs> said, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, but for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And then the king says to Esther, who is he and where is he that has dared do this? And this is where you just like get the irony of Esther sitting across from the king with Haman at his right hand and he says, who's the guy that's trying to kill you? And Esther just kind of goes, just with her eyes, she kind of just looks at Haman and the king realizes, oh my goodness, this is, this is the people that Haman wants dead, And he goes, gets up, and he is enraged. Look at verse 7. King rose in wrath. King rose in wrath and left the room and went into his palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. He knew the king was mad because he was in a drunken rage. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. And Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Think of it, he's just pleading. He's just trying, he's grabbing a hold of the bottom of her robe and her feet and saying, Please, please, please. But Some commentators think that she might have tripped, right, when he grabbed her foot and that he looked like he was trying to assault her. And that's the exact moment where the king walks in. And so the king, already enraged, comes in and says, I mean, this is like a soap opera, right? King, already enraged, comes in and says, oh, now you're trying to do that? Okay, where is the nearest gallows? Well, guess what just had the last nail put in it? Those gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai. And so that's how the story goes from there, is that the very gallows that Haman built for Mordecai, now Haman himself is killed on, it says at the end of, verse seven, of, of chapter 7, that the, the wrath of the king abated. <laughs> and so you have all of these strange, uh, quote unquote, coincidences that happen. And there's, there's a little bit more to the story, but for the sake of time, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get to the application, because this application is really good. What's the point of the story of Esther? God's not mentioned at all in the book, but here's the first application, is that God is at work in your life even when you don't see it. Think of all the coincidences that brought Esther into this place to be the hero. Queen Vashti's refusal, Esther's beauty, Mordecai saving the king, Esther strangely asking for a second banquet, Haman's wicked plots, the king being unable to sleep, The daily record chosen, Haman's arrogance, Mordecai being forgotten, and then honored, Esther's courage, the king's anger, the king's misperception of Haman's attempted assault, and then the gallows availability. Last week in the book of Malachi, what did we see? We saw the Lord say to us, put me to the test. See if I will not open up the heavens. Now, when we hear that word test, we sometimes think that we should just kind of sit back and not obey. And, and that's how we put God to the test. And he'll give us a sign as to whether or not we should go forward. That's not what God means there. God says, no, you obey me and watch me work. You obey me and watch me work. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the story of Esther today. God is saying, trust me, obey me, watch what I can do. The story of Esther is a testimony to God's sovereignty in light of our obedience and even in spite of our disobedience. Just as we've seen with Joseph, with Daniel, Shadrach, and friends, and so many others, God has rigged the system so that we can fulfill our calling to testify of his greatness among the nations. God has determined that these things will come to be. God has promised us, and how can he promise us about the future if he is not in control of it to some degree? How uh, People talk, and this, and this is one of those areas that's, that's real tricky for us, but Scripture has no, has no worries about it. We talk about, well, is God sovereign or is man free? Yes. Yes to both. Do our choices really matter? Absolutely they do, but God is in control, and you try praying without praying that God is in control. Every one of our prayers assumes that God is in control. Your choices matter. I think, I, think that, I think that part of the reason that the book of Esther is in the Bible is to show that these people may, may have not had stellar faith because God's never mentioned them. When Mordecai and Esther are talking in Esther chapter 4, they don't say, well, you know, God's promised us this, and God will work, and remember how God worked then. That's what we see all over the Scriptures except in the book of Esther. So it's safe to say that their faith was struggling. Maybe you can identify with that today. Just because you're struggling does not mean that God is any less powerful. And just because you don't see his hand at work doesn't mean that he's not at work. God is at work around you, and he's promised us things, and those promises determine the path of our obedience. But then secondly and lastly, you you can't, this is is what we see in Esther chapter 4, is that you can't hold on to your life, so risk it for the kingdom. You see, Mordecai's response to Esther's crisis of faith is essentially this. Esther, death is certain, but what is even more certain is that God is going to accomplish his purposes. Job chapter 42, verse verse two, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Can I tell you something this morning? That your safety is a myth. This idea that we're safe here in our homes, and in our cars, and in Abbeville, and in Henry County, and it's a myth. Safety, in, in an American frame of mind, is simply a myth. It's an illusion. So it's foolish to live your life in pursuit of more safety and more comfort, because even if you achieve it, it won't last. It's, and that's why it's better to bet your life on something that is eternal and that's unfading, Jim Elliott said this. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What can you not keep? Your safety, your life, your wealth, your comfort. But what can you not lose? Your eternal life. The fact that Jesus is king and that he has said, It is finished. You can't lose those things. And so the question that you have to ask for yourself is this, what do I believe is certain in this life? Really, ask yourself that question. What are you operating on a daily basis believing is a certainty in your life? Your tomorrow? Your health? Your job? Your finances? Your friendships? Friends, the question is not, am I going to lose these earthly things? That is certain. The question is, are you going to have a stake in what's eternal through your earthly faithfulness? And that's where the question of God's sovereignty just settles for us. You're not called to know tomorrow. You're supposed to trust in the one who does. What are you called to do? You're called to be certain that faithfulness is your task for the moment. And that trusting him with the future, trusting him to be who he is, has never failed anybody. And so what are you certain of this morning? Why not leverage all that you have for the things that are going to last forever? That's the way that the Lord wants us to end this, this journey through the Old Testament. It's just to say, guys, you've seen it over and over and over again. Is there anyone who keeps their promises like me? Is there anyone worth pouring your life into except for me? That's the question that each one of you have to answer today. And the way that you need to answer it is, what am I certain of? What am I living my life for? And in that way, God will guide you. God will guide you to faithfulness and what it looks like in your context. Let's pray together.